morning, familia. I like that. Well, good morning to our familia, not just here, but those who are joining us online. We are so glad that you are here with us. We miss you, and we can't wait for the day when we can all be in the same space together. But for now, we're glad that you could join us in this particular way. Uh, And before we start, I do want to talk about even some of the stuff that we were talking about with Pentecost Sunday and say that when we step into this room, when we sing, when we worship, when we pray, when we open up God's word and we read, when we receive the preaching of God's word, it it is all for nothing if the Spirit of God does not move in our hearts and our lives, amen? It's, it's just words on a page if the Spirit of God does not bring it to life. It's just singing words on a screen if it's not the Spirit of God working in our lives to make those truths real to us, real to each other as we sing the gospel to one another. So on Pentecost Sunday, we don't just remember a, 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 an event that happened, remember a person that has laid claim on our lives and has changed everything about us and continues to empower us to love God and love each other. Amen? Well, this morning, we are in our series, continuing our series in 1 Corinthians 13 called Love Unfiltered. For the last few weeks, we've been spending some concentrated time in this chapter, chapter 13, asking God to to recalibrate our understanding and our expectations of love according to his word. And as we do so often here at TVC, we didn't just look at this chapter all on its own. We wanted to situate this chapter in its context as part of a letter to a church in a city called Corinth, a church with a whole lot of issues that are being addressed in this letter by one of their pastors, Paul. Last month, we started with the first three verses in that chapter. We looked about the absolute necessity of love in the Christian life, that, that love is core to what it means to be a Christian, a message it seems like the Corinthians, at least in that letter, seem to forget or even ignore. But then we started to dive into the rest of the chapter where, where Pastor Paul starts describing what love looks like. And so Pastor Rob, a few weeks ago, actually started with the first two characteristics that love is patient and love is kind. And last week, Pastor Hannibal stepped into the next one about love does not envy. If you haven't heard that sermon, I'm still reeling from it, and the Lord is still using it in my life. Well, this week, we step into another set of characteristics about love. But first, before we step into those characteristics, I want to read the entire chapter again and situate us in what love looks like. And so, if you uh, have your Bibles, please turn or scroll. That's okay, too. Uh, If you're worshiping with us from home, grab your Bible off the shelf, open it up. We're in 1 Corinthians 13, and if you can stand, please stand if you're able for the reading of God's word. We're going to read that entire section on love. When you're there, say amen. Awesome. 1 Corinthians 13, starting at verse 1. I'm going to open my Bible here because that's what we do here, right? If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels... But do not have love. I am only a resounding gong, a a clanging cymbal, if you will. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor, I give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not 
easily angered, and it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. This is God's word. You may be seated. God, we thank you for your word this morning, and we pray that you would open up our hearts to receive your encouragement, to receive your grace, to receive your correction, and to receive your challenge. May the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts this morning in this space be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Would you make it acceptable by the power of your spirit, and would you change us? Amen. Love does not boast. Love is not proud. This morning... We're talking about pride. The sin that sits below the surface of many sins. The sin that creeps in undetected and infects so many of our acts and thoughts and experiences. Even when we're trying to be humble. The sin that is so easy to see in others but near impossible to see in ourselves. Pride. So you see, as a um, fellow prideful person... Uh, I'm up here not because I have conquered pride and I'm just here to tell you my 10 tips and tricks to conquer pride, but to lead us all to the Bible, to hear about the God, the Jesus, who conquered our pride and came to us in humility in the gospel. So you see, my heart is just as wicked as yours just because I'm a few feet up. It doesn't mean that I don't need Jesus just as much as you do, that I don't need the gospel as much as you do. And so to start with our time here, I want to tell you a story about wine. Settle down. It's not that kind of story. Hannah Anderson uh, tells the story in her book about cultivating humility. She illustrates our struggle with pride using the story about French wine. She says, in the mid-1800s, French winemakers almost lost their entire industry because of a microscopic creature called phylloxera. Sometime during the late 1850s, this insect was carried across from the Atlantic Uh, from North America across the Atlantic. And it it caused what historians call the great French wine blight. And at the beginning of this issue, growers didn't know what was happening. Some unknown disease that they couldn't quite uh, explain was attacking their vines. One or two vines would flag, the the leaves would become discolored, turn yellow, eventually red. They'd dry up, they'd fall off. The very next season, the same symptoms would start to spread to the vines nearby. And even if the vines could produce fruit at this point, it was only acidic and watery, good for nothing. By the third season, the vines would be dead with no apparent cause that they could find. Trying to fix things, growers tried everything from chemical pesticides to even getting some some hens to eat insects off the plants, trying to figure out what was going on. But the blight spread quickly. And over the course of 15 years, this microscopic creature killed nearly 40% of French vines and threatened the entire European wine industry. The most infuriating part about all this was that scientists could actually see the effects of the blight, the withering, the discoloration, the lack of fruit, but they couldn't pinpoint the cause because the damage was happening at the roots. And so when growers would actually excavate the roots of dead vines, they found them black and decomposed, but they didn't notice any of these creatures because by that point, these creatures had moved on to feed on healthy roots. A breakthrough finally came when they observed these dying roots. They pulled them out of the ground. They weren't yet dead, and they saw these creatures clinging to the roots. But even then, they had a debate amongst themselves. 
Many insisted that these parasites were just trying to take advantage of weakened vines. They were an effect of the blight, not the cause itself. The vines continued to die, and the blight continued to spread. See, you see, pride's most subtle, sneaky, and deceiving quality is just how much we struggle to see it. And even when we do, we even tend to excuse it away as, as anything but pride. Right? We, we see what it's doing. We can acknowledge, okay, the things are really bad in my life right now, but instead of naming it as pride and allowing the good news of Jesus to get rid of the disease that is killing us at our roots, we actually misread the situation. We, we rationalize things like our, our short tempers as a, a, a normal reaction to stress. We don't see what's killing us at our roots. We, we explain our worry away as, as normal because, well, we have so many things on our plate, so many responsibilities, so it's natural that I would just be wor- worried. So this is just a parasite feeding on a weakened state in my life right now. We're left trying to figure out why our vines are dying without seeing that they have been weakened all the way at the roots. And so we try to take care of the vines, right? We, we, we convince ourselves that, that, that better boundaries and practicing saying no more often will, will fix our stress. We just need some time away to decompress, right? Like I just, it's too much. I need to just get away. We need to get a better grip on our calendars and steward our time better. And maybe just extend our work days past our normal working hours to get all the work in, and then then things will be better. But it doesn't always seem to work. Now, now here's what's so hard about this. What I just mentioned, boundaries and stewarding your calendar, none of those are wrong. Right? I'll let you in on something. I've had every single one of these thoughts that I put in here and tried every single one of these solutions this entire year for myself. Boundaries are good. You and I both need time away to rest, to recuperate. We, we do need to be good stewards of our time, and, and even especially in a busy season, as long as we don't convince ourselves into a perpetually busy season. But the problem is that these solutions do not fix the real issue. They don't get to the real issue at its root. Boundaries without embracing a lack of control is just another recipe to make me stressed in a smaller space. Time away without actually trying to figure out and tackling what brought me to the point where I needed, I just stopped in my tracks and needed to get away, just hits pause on the stress until the return flight. Attempting to steward my calendar without a clear recognition that I am neither eternal, nor omnipresent, nor omnipotent, only ends up enslaving me to my calendar. The problem is bigger than just leaves withering on the vine. There's something eating away at our roots, at my roots and at your roots, and that something is pride. This morning, we're going to get down to those roots and we're going to expose that pride that is disintegrating our souls, and then we'll encounter a gardener that knows just what we need to heal us from the disease called pride. In order to do that, I want to start by defining pride according to God's word, and then look at the danger of pride and how it infects us. And then end by looking at the difference that the gospel makes. What happens when pride comes face to face with Jesus? The definition of pride, the danger of pride, and the gospel difference. You tracking? All right. Let's start by defining our terms. What is pride? 
Well, the Bible builds out this definition in a lot of different places, and I didn't imagine you wanted to be here for five hours this morning. So for our purposes this morning, I'm just going to put three passages up on the screen that, that form a good foundation for our understanding of pride. The first one is Proverbs 16, 18, where the Bible warns us that pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. You see, when we talk about pride, we're not dealing with just some annoying mosquito or some fly that just won't go away. Pride is out to destroy us. It wants to kill us. Pride leads to destruction. I'll jump to Psalm 10:4, where we read this. In his pride, the wicked man does not seek him, meaning God. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. You see, pride not only destroys, it crowds out any thought or regard that you could have for God. It fills the space in our heads and the depths of our hearts and excludes anything that God could fill in that space. Jumping ahead to the New Testament, 1 Peter 5.5 5 says this, All of you, speaking to the church, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Because, quoting the Old Testament, he says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Pride destroys. Pride crowds out God. And now we read here that God opposes the proud. There is something so dangerous in pride, so anti-God, that God's response to pride is opposition. Thankfully, we've got the whole Bible, and we see that that opposition still didn't stop him from doing what he did in the gospel through Jesus. Amen? But I'm getting ahead of myself. We'll get to the gospel difference in a minute. What is pride? Pride is a destructive and God-replacing posture that produces opposition from God. But that's not the end of my definition. You see, we're in 1 Corinthians 13, and so I would be remiss in the way that I have been preaching since I got here to not go into the context of 1 Corinthians and see what, how God defines pride in this book. So I want us to jump into 1 Corinthians and talk about pride there to fill out the rest of this definition. You see, the word that's translated in 1 Corinthians 13, 4 as proud is used only seven times in the entire New Testament. And six of those times are in this letter. Clearly, it's something Paul was concerned about. Clearly, it's something that the Corinthian church needed to hear. So before landing in our passage, I'm going to look at two other uses of this word to help us understand what we're dealing with when we get to 1 Corinthians 13.4 and learn that love does not boast. Love is not proud. So chapter 4, verse 6 in 1 Corinthians says this. Now, brothers and sisters, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what it is written, what is written. Then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over against the other. Hannibal talked about this a little bit last week, but the Corinthians have been arguing about their favorite preachers, right? In our context, it would be something like, I like Hannibal. Well, I like Eric. I know most of you are on this side. But it went from, don't tell him I said, he'll watch this. It went from more than preference to, not I like, but I follow. I follow Hannibal. Well, I follow Eric. And what Paul is saying in this section is, is no, the, the Bible cuts right through your pride and says, do not go beyond what is written. Do you know what that means? It means, no, you don't follow Hannibal. And no, you don't follow Eric. You don't follow Paul. You don't follow Apollos. You follow Jesus. Don't go beyond what is written. We all have the Bible. That is our rule of thumb. 
The moment anyone goes beyond the Bible, the moment Eric or Hannibal preach something that's beyond the Bible, is the moment any of us should stop following and bring loving and familia kind of correction to each other. I invite that. I'm telling you right now, just because I'm a few feet up doesn't mean that you can't stop me and say, hey, I'm not so sure about that. Why? Because by not going beyond the Bible, the text says, we avoid, Paul says, you avoid being puffed up by being a follower of this or that person. And that word translated puffed up there is actually the same word that's translated as pride in 1 Corinthians 13. It's a word picture of someone that puffs out their chest and struts around like they own the place. Growing up in Miami, we had this um, real pest problem in my house. I know here, you guys, we, we look out for mice and we have to set out traps for all that. Well, where I grew up, you had to look out for cane toads. I didn't want to put a picture up there because they're very, very ugly. But they were everywhere. I mean, absolutely everywhere. They, they were this invasive species in Florida. They were all over our backyard. And, and while I'm not super proud about this, but it makes my point, in my youth, my unredeemed youth, I bought a paintball gun for fun. But then my dad and I had some creative ideas about pest control. And so I would go hunting for cane toads in my backyard. And every time I came across one of them, it would, it would notice what I was doing and freak out and would jump up and get, I mean, huge, would puff up so big, which made them easy targets. I don't know why they did this. And then I would use that paintball gun to rid us of our pest problem. Puff, air, gone. And so what happens in this next verse, in chapter 4, verse 7, Paul starts to shoot holes in their puffed up and inflated view of themselves. He says this, for who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, we all know you did, why do you boast as though you did not? TVC, what do you have that you did not receive from God? In the kingdom of God, there's, there's no such thing as a self-made person. There is no such thing as someone that pulled themselves up by their bootstraps. Because when we become Christians, we eagerly and joyfully, readily acknowledge that all that we have, not just our salvation, but every single thing that we have in this life is a gift from God. Hard work, dedication, practice, all of that incredibly important. But all of that is like air, like vapor, without a deep recognition that God is the one who gave it to you in the first place, and God is the one who can take it away. What is pride? It destroys. It leaves no room for God. It invites God's opposition, and here we see that it is this, this fog that blinds us from seeing God as the source of anything good in our lives. But again, Paul continues to refer to pride in this letter in chapter 8, verse 1, when he writes this, to round out our definition here. He says, now about food sacrifice to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge, quote unquote, we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Same word picture we were talking about, puffed up by knowledge. Before, it was puffed up by the people who gave us knowledge, right, Hannibal or Eric. Now, it's puffed up by the knowledge itself, by, by, by wisdom according to Corinthian standards, a knowledge that is filled with air but has no substance, contrasted with a love that builds, a love with substance. Love does, that does not pretend to be what it is not, 
a love that recognizes and embraces who you are in relation to God. Love that's described just a few chapters later in our passage as without boast and absent of pride. Love is not proud. Love is not puffed up. There is no room for boasting. Love does not strut into a room. It does not brag or throw itself a parade whenever it shows up. Love does not seek status or victory over others. Love and pride, love and boasting, they are contradictions in terms. Love focuses on others while pride and boasting focus on self. So pride demands, requires, that we live in an alternate reality. A puffed up hallucination of our own making where we live as if what we have came from our own hands rather than the hand of God. It's it's like a fever dream where we are so sick that we don't even realize that what we are looking at isn't even real. But what is real is the Bible's testimony in in chapter 1 Samuel and in Matthew, where it reminds us who God is. In 1 Samuel, when Hannah prays, it says, the Lord sends poverty and wealth, he humbles and he exalts. In Matthew, when Jesus is talking, he says, those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. What is pride? Pride is a destructive and God-replacing posture that produces opposition from God and distorts reality. It is an unwillingness to acknowledge my dependence on God and on others. A misrepresentation of success as mine and not a gift from God. It is seeking my exaltation and their humiliation. It is ingratitude, an inability to confess or show weakness, an inability to receive criticism or disrespect like Jesus did when he received criticism and disrespect. But see, As I've defined pride according to God's word, that's only part of the solution here this morning. You see, defining pride in these dark terms does make it seem like, okay, well, that that sounds like a lot. Am I really dealing with that, right? This is the sneaky part of pride. So even in defining pride, I want to move on and say, okay, I want to talk about the danger of pride so you can see how bad it is and how subtle it is, how sneaky it is. I want you to see the danger of pride. You see, pride is hard to pinpoint because like an octopus, it blends into its environment and gets its arms into everything. Right? This is what makes it so dangerous. And we see that danger. This is how I want to show you that danger in this portrait of pride that's in a Babylonian king in Scripture. You see, God does these kinds of things in, in the Bible. He gives us these examples for our good. So a little bit of an aside, the reason I'm doing this too, is when you come across in the Word a portrait like this, an image like this, it is not so that we can feel good about ourselves. Man, at least I'm not that bad. The point of God putting these things in the Bible is so that you can see them, you can learn from them without having to experience it yourself. See, this is part of the danger. Most of us will never be rich enough, powerful enough, or have enough influence to know that it really doesn't satisfy. And so God gives us people in his word that do have that and prove that it doesn't. You see, that's how sin, sin will give us just enough to be intoxicated as long as necessary until it can kill us from alcohol poisoning. The portrait of pride here, though, exposes that sin so that we don't have to deal with that in our own lives so that we can actually learn from God's word. So here's our portrait. Hundreds of years before Jesus, the Babylonian empire took over the known world. 
right? And it's consuming everything in its path, like empires at that time and really anywhere and all over history do. And it eventually came to God's people and they took Jerusalem captive, right? They removed all the elites from Jerusalem, all the people who headed up their military, their creatives, their intellectuals. They brought them all to the Babylonian capital city and the king in general who carved out this throne for Babylon, well, this king was named King Nebuchadnezzar. And his story is all over the book of Daniel. Now, despite having most of the known world at his feet, despite all of this conquest, something happened that made the king not sleep so easy at night, interrupt his sleep with anxiety. A dream kept coming to him that filled him with anxiety about his empire. And if you want to read about that dream, you can read that in chapter 2. But, but what ends up happening is that no one can interpret his dream. None of his staff of wise men, none of the people that are trained in all of the Babylonian arts could figure out what was going on in this dream until an exile from Jerusalem, one of those Jewish elites, steps forward. Daniel. Acknowledging and depending upon God's power, Daniel was able to tell the king both the content of his dream, because he was kind of withholding it to see who could really prove what they knew what they were doing, the content of his dream, and then the interpretation of what it meant. And the dream, Daniel says, is this call to humility, king, a call to humility by the God of the universe. And the text says that King Nebuchadnezzar actually listened, right? He calls God the Lord of kings. He humbles himself. But like any good story, it doesn't stop there. Because just a few chapters later, though his heart had begun to change, it didn't seem like the change penetrated deep enough because then he gets another dream that just starts keeping him up at night. This time he tells Daniel the dream. And he says, listen, I I saw this huge tree. I mean, it it got all the way to the tops of the heavens. And out of nowhere, this voice from heaven calls down, cut down the tree. Now, let the stump and its roots remain, but let his mind be changed from a man to an animal. When the king looks up, finished telling his dream, the look on Daniel's face said it all. Terror and horror etched in every line. He knew exactly what was going on. And his interpretation of the dream silences the room that they're in. He says, listen, king, God is going to teach you the lesson you did not learn the first time. You're still an oppressive ruler, king. God is going to humble you. But king, there is hope. There is hope if you repent. There is hope even in this dream of judgment. Now, this interpretation ends and the scene kind of ends in the story. We don't really get much out of it. But, but we do start to learn something about God. We start to realize that God is not out to get Nebuchadnezzar. He's not just after him for whatever reason. He's after redemption. And we know this because the text goes on to say that a year later, after this dream, 12 months later, the dream has still not come to pass. And a year later, this king, with all this time to learn and repent, opens the door to his rooftop palace and strolls, maybe struts. And the text says, he says out loud, is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence? By my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty. His pride is strong as ever. And the very next verse tells us this. Even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. The voice of God. The voice of the dream. 
And what God said would happen, happened. Daniel 4.33 tells it like this. Immediately what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. Something happened with God's judgment in this space. Something from the hand of God that was bad enough that it not only meant that Nebuchadnezzar could no longer rule, but he he couldn't even function normal society. He devolved physically and mentally into a dehumanized version of himself distorted and twisted by pride. Tim Keller uses this portrait of pride with King Nebuchadnezzar in his book called Counterfeit Gods. And he he concludes this from, from King Nebuchadnezzar's life. He says, one of the great ironies of sin is that when human beings try to become more than human beings, to be as gods, they fall to become lower than human beings. To be your own god and live for your own glory and power leads to the most bestial and cruel kind of behavior. Pride makes you a predator, not a person. This is the danger of pride, TVC. In an effort to be more than human, we become less than human. We treat others as less than human as resources and commodities to be used for our own promotion. And what's worse is that it's it's just so hard to see. I mean, in fact, we don't even usually see it because let's be honest, we become so used to it that we don't even recognize it as sin anymore. And even if we see it, we almost always only see it in others and not in ourselves, which is precisely why we need to submit to God and his word that he might tell us what he sees in us. Which is precisely why we need each other, a community submitted to God and his word that we might tell each other what we see in each other. Not for the purpose of condemnation, but for the purpose of gospel change, gospel humility. To help us see what we can't see. The story goes, for seven years, Nebuchadnezzar is stuck in a wilderness of his own making. Body twisted by pride, mind distorted by his arrogance. And then in chapter 4, verse 34 through 37, he actually tells us what happened at the end of those seven years. He says, at the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. Verse 36, at the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out. And I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Verse 37, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right, all his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. God's correction worked. He humbled the king and it brought the king into relationship with the God that before he scoffed at. Defining pride and seeing the danger that's there in that pride is good and right, right? I I want you to see what it is and what it costs, what it does, how it damages. But you might be going, okay, Eric, that's great. I know a bunch of stuff now. I see a bunch of stuff. What do I do? Well, the first thing that I want us to talk through is in order to avoid having terrifying dreams to see your pride, Here's a couple things that might help. And they come from this this essay by a theologian named Jonathan Edwards where it's a short essay about spiritual pride and he names seven warning signs. Because again, this is what's so dangerous about pride. It, It lurks beneath the surface and it blends in with its environment. But these things come out just like those vines and you see the damage that is being done. 
So here are those seven warning signs. The first is a critical tongue. Seeing issues with others easily and making them known verbally. The Christian filled with pride does not operate in grace. And that tends to leak in conversation. Anyone connect with that? Mm-hmm. Oh, I got, okay, I got one or two. I'll tell you, this is me. Right, this, is, this is how wicked my heart gets when I get stressed, my pride rises, my critical spirit comes out. You can ask Jocelyn how often I have to ask forgiveness from her where all of a sudden I start finding faults where there are no faults. And I have to catch myself and I have to confess and I have to repent and I have to say, that is not true. My pride is coming out. I'm being critical. Anyone? Let's keep going. The second effect is a harsh spirit. What characterizes our tone in our conversations? Are they mean, harsh, severe words, tones? Are they words that reflect the humility, the gentleness that Christ has shown us? A harsh spirit. Number three, a shallow spirituality. We become obsessed with how we appear rather than what is really going on in our hearts. In fact, we might even find, if you took stock of where you've been growing as a Christian, that we are especially holy in areas where the most people can see it. We pray with incredible power in public, but neglect our private prayers. We know a whole lot of Bible. We step into a Bible study, and we tell people all the things that we know about the Bible, and yet aren't actually practicing it. We serve in carefest and do a really great job, and then neglect to serve our families at home. We want to be seen as spiritual, not be spiritually healthy. Anyone? It's a hard list to get through. I struggled through each of these at some point this past week that I had to repent from. Number four, a defensive posture. When pride is in the driver's seat, we tend to see more personal offenses, even when there aren't any. We tend to talk about them to others to try to get them on our side, and bitterness starts to poison every one of our conversations. But that's not the way Jesus was when he suffered. When Jesus suffered, he was silent. Edwards says that at the end of this section, he says, For the humble Christian, the more the world is against them, the more silent and still they will be unless it is in their prayer closet. And there, they will not be still. It's not saying, hey, don't let this out and don't talk about it. It's who are you talking about it with? Everybody around you? Or God who sees our hearts? Number five, an overconfident attitude, both with God and with others. You see, absent humility, we approach God boldly like the Bible tells us to, but with an expectation or an entitlement that makes demands rather than praise requests. We treat others with the silent expectation that they are there to serve us and our purposes. Or, and and this is way more subtle even, right? We come before God with absolutely no confidence, an underconfident attitude. And this is why it's so dangerous because it feels like humility when we do that, but it's really pride camouflaged, right? Because the focus is still not on God, but on ourselves and our sin, We functionally believe that he is not able to take care of our sin, of this specific sin in those moments. 
I'll tell you, that one made me stop and sit and pray a lot this week. Number six, a hunger for attention. We don't just want to do a good job. We want to be seen as doing a good job. Right? We want the recognition, and we especially notice when we don't get the recognition we think we deserve. Now, there's nothing wrong with recognition when it is given appropriately, but we must always remember that the most important recognition comes from God and God alone. We must always remember the words of Jesus in Luke 17, 10, when he says, so you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. Is this our posture? Or are we obsessed with being seen by others? Seven, a neglect of certain kinds of people. The last warning sign of pride is that we neglect certain people, right? The kind of people that won't upgrade our status or help us climb the ladder or, or increase, our, increase our platform or build our brand. We feel the electricity of, of having a, a powerful person acknowledge us, engage us in the room, all the while missing the needy people around us, the weak people around us, the people that won't increase our brand. We pass over the weak and the helpless, the ones Jesus calls us to serve, and let's be honest, the ones that God describes us as before he met us in the gospel. Have you noticed any of these in your life recently? I'll tell you, I was tempted to cut this list, you know, for time. It's a hard list to get through. And this is what's so sneaky about this. By the time I'm done with this list, you might be like, hey, we're not even talking about pride right now, Eric. I don't even know. All these things are... That's what's so dangerous about it. That all of these things come out and we think it's all these, we try to fix, plug all these holes and yet the boat is still sinking. Because the problem is our pride. I'll illustrate this danger, right? Because again, this is not just a sin that one or two of us struggle with. I mean, this is the baseline for many of our sin issues. So I'll I'll illustrate this with the story from my living room. Um, Sitting across from my bride one evening in October, uh, Jocelyn decides, gets up and says, Eric, do, do you smell that? Kind of look around, not sure what she's talking about. She's hunting our house for the smell at this point. She's sniffing every vent and hallway. She's like, I can't believe you cannot smell the odor of hot garbage and death that is circling our house right now. Naturally, I think she's lost her mind, that she's imagining it. What, something's wrong with her nose. I don't know. That's how we found out I had COVID. Turns out that I was the one who had a distorted sense of reality and couldn't smell the sewage that had backed up in our basement right next to our furnace that transferred the smell of hot garbage all over our house whenever the heat turned on. There was a problem. Jocelyn identified it, but I couldn't. My senses were off. This is the danger of pride. It is so hard to see, and that's why it is so deadly. But yet the Bible, Jesus, God, offers us a solution. And yet this solution, this, the problem is that precisely because of our pride, we are unwilling to accept that solution. Hannah Anderson continues to explain in her book, that the problem is that we're so obsessed with ourselves. We, we, we have this obsession, this need to fix everything. 
We have an insatiable desire to be approved of, to count for something, which then leads us to make pride into something that needs to be conquered and humility into something that we can attain. But in her words, she writes this, humility is not a commodity. It is not something you can achieve. It is not something you earn or accomplish. Being humble is something you either are or you aren't. Which is why the solution to pride is not try harder. The solution to pride is the gospel. And this is where we talk about the gospel difference. Because the gospel is what makes all the difference in this conversation. It is the bridge between pride and humility. It is the ultimate display of humility. I mean, if our pride is what is keeping us from being healed... It's, keeping, it's clouding our vision and keeping us from seeing ourselves as prideful. Well, then we need a kind of gospel that can cut through that. And it's the gospel that tells us that Jesus came to us when we couldn't come to him. When we were incapable of humbling ourselves, Jesus humbled himself. Jesus humbled himself because we couldn't. Philippians 2 tells us that Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. The good news of the gospel is that the pride that kept us from God was overcome by the God who humbled himself who crossed the boundary line of our pride with his humility, who entered into our sin and our suffering and transformed it. His sinless life. Jesus' death on a cross for our sin and his resurrection proving that he beat sin is the good news that cuts through our pride and saves us from ourselves. That crumbles our pride and says that we are enemies made into friends, orphans made into children. In Jesus, we have been made into new creations, into new people. Through nothing that we did, we received the free gift of God's grace, and now we operate in humility. In Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 through 29, Jesus says this, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Using this first hand, Anderson says, when Jesus tells us this, he's not just trying to give us a, he's not giving us a new skill to master. This isn't a 20-step program to humility in 10 days or less. Humility requires a fundamental change that is made possible by Jesus and Jesus alone. And so I'll end by illustrating that with this story. If any of you have read C.S. Lewis, he has a series called The Chronicles of Narnia. And in the third book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, there's this boy named Eustace Scrub. Unfortunate name, I know. Now, Eustace had this certain lust for power. And one night, he finds this huge treasure in a cave, and he starts to to fantasize about what his life is going to be now, how much power he's going to have, how easy his life was going to be. And as he imagined, well, he, he ended up falling asleep. And when he woke up, to his horror, he had turned into an ugly dragon. See, so it's tells a scene like this, sleeping on a dragon's hoard with greedy, dragonish thoughts in his heart, he had become a dragon himself. Filled with thoughts like a dragon, Eustace had himself become a dragon. Like Nebuchadnezzar, who had set his heart on power and conquest as a result of his pride, Eustace had done the same and it had 
dehumanized him. In the same way, when we are so captivated by our pride, when we are so captivated, distorted, we are changed into what we worship. In Eustace's case, he was more powerful than he could ever imagine, but as the scene plays out, we find that he is also more fearful and ugly and alone than he could have ever imagined. Well, the new experience starts to humble him, though, and, and he wants to be normal again. His pride, start, his pride starts to crumble, and his heart longs to be healed, and then one night, a mysterious lion approaches him, challenges him to undress, in other words, to try to take off his dragon skin, well, Eustace starts to work at it, and he actually manages to get the first top layer off, but, but underneath is just more dragon. So he tries it a second time, and then a third time. Still dragon. It's pointless. And then the lion opens his mouth. And the scene goes like this. You will have to let me undress you. Eustace tells us, I, I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now, so, so I just lay flat down on my back to, to let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began, when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I ever felt. And while well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done it myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there was I, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch, and smaller than I had been. I turned into a boy again. If you're not familiar with the Chronicles of Narnia, that line is named Aslan and is this, this Christ figure that shows up in the stories over and over again. The story of Eustace illustrates the danger of pride and just what it takes to avoid the destruction and loss of humanity that pride leads us to. There's hope. If we let these moments of pain and punishment humble us rather than fill us with bitterness, if we turn to God instead of living for ourselves, then as Tim Keller writes, the death of your pride can lead to a resurrection. In the gospel of Jesus, we are offered that resurrection. Jesus offers us life outside of the pride that is killing us. Life outside of the sin that is destroying us. Life with him. There is hope in Jesus. And yes, I'm not going to beat around the bush. It will be painful. As he begins to peel the sin that has so marked you as less than human. Less than who he created you to be. As he begins his surgical work, it will hurt to peel off the layers that have built up over all of these years. But it is worth it. It is worth it. Because on the other side, you will actually be human again. You will be who God created you to be. And unlike Eustace, that process will probably take years. But Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus is not proud. He does not boast. Love has a name. It is Jesus. This is the only way to be rid of the pride that is killing us. The sin that wants to destroy us. It is the only way we can love like he loved. It's the only way that we can love without boasting, love without pride, be a community that truly loves one another and the people that God brings into this space. TVC as Christians, we have to ask, 
Are we being characterized by love or by pride? And we need to come to the one who can tell us like it is, whether that's the case. Which is why I want to pray now. Because we have to come to the only one who can tell us what reality looks like because we can't even see it. Would you pray with me? Jesus, our prayer this morning is, is really simple. We ask that you would heal us of our pride. Would you change us from the inside out by your gospel? That we might be humble like you are humble. Just a few moments, we're going to sing with confidence that you have broken the power of sin. That you have risen from the grave. That you are indeed Lord of all. And we ask that you would enable us and empower us by your spirit to live out that confidence in humility. Throughout this week, would you grant us the grace of living for your glory and the good of others? Would you teach us what it means that love is not proud, that love does not boast? We trust you. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.